Hello and welcome to the Golf 4 Podcast, a show all about education and inclusion. I'm Richard Ingram. In one of those little ironies that life seems to be full of, not many people are included in conversations about inclusion. Education policies often come from the top of government, while grassroots initiatives are supported by those intimately involved in the issues at hand. The average person on the street has little input. Why would they? The status quo says. They're not experts. They're not teachers. Brown Norwich is looking to change that. He believes that decision-making processes in education, and particularly those relating to the inclusion of marginalised learners, should be democratised. After all, quality of and access to education does not just impact students. It has ramifications for wider society, a society that everyone is a part of. Brown is Professor of Educational Psychology and Special Educational Needs at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Exeter. He was previously Professor of Special Needs Education at the Institute of Education at London University. He's worked as a school teacher, professional educational psychologist and university teacher and researcher. He also has the rather dubious accolade of being my PhD supervisor. Bram Norwich, welcome to Golf 4. Thank you. What does inclusive education mean to you? Right, well, um, that's a difficult one. I mean, I guess at one level, it's sort of a, a, a term that sort of points you in a particular direction and sort of has sort of connotations of trying to be comprehensive in one's approach to school education. I guess that would be, uh, but of course, inclusive education now also applies in higher, further in higher education. So it would apply to that, those sort of organizations as well. I mean, I think inclusion is um, many things, and I think that's partly the problem with it. I think part of it is that uh, it's a it's a pretty new term, which I think surprises some people. Certainly, when I started my career some years ago, there was no no such thing as inclusion, and it, it certainly had no sort of resonance. People would talk about integration, and people would talk about different types of integration, and I think that the sort of push to inclusion that you can notice is, I guess, partly come through the United Nations, Salamanca, and the various sort of pressure groups, international and others that have tried to promote this sort of value. I think for many people, it, it was about trying to make accommodations. In other words, not just placing children in a regular class or a general school, but making accommodations and uh, adapting the class and the school to a wider set of needs. So you have a notion of diversity. And of course, inclusion and diversity were always put as being against individual differences and uh, integration. So I guess, I mean, that that's the way I... I sort of see it. There's plenty one could say about uh, inclusive education. I think that the, the, over the years, the, the meaning is sort of shaken out in various directions. So you, could, you, you can get people who would say that a special school can be inclusive. Uh, but clearly that means something slightly different 
from saying making uh, ordinary schools more inclusive. I mean, I, about 10 years ago, I reached the point of saying, what's the point of the term anymore? You know, what's the point? But actually over the last 10 years, the term has become even more current and is more mm. widely used. So people talk about an inclusive uh, economy and they talk about inclusive universities. People it goes way never, beyond education. Way, way beyond. And people never used to talk like that. People used to talk about a more equal, uh, more just or more equitable economies on. So inclusive has become a bit of a... Um, been transferred into many areas and I think as some some people have commented it's lost a bit of its bite. If everyone's now using this term inclusion or saying something is inclusive does that devalue the, the term slightly? Perhaps devalue is the wrong word. Yeah I mean my, my sense is I mean I, I go between sort of saying well what's the point of using it given its sort of ambiguities but on the other hand, I think it, it's a sort of like an umbrella term. It sort of points in a direction as opposed to another direction. So I think it, it, as a sort of um, introduction, it's not a bad start. It's a starting term, but I don't think it gets you very far. You've got, you've got to clarify what kind of inclusion, inclusion of what, in what, what are you being included in? And if you're being included in one thing, are you being... A, are you being excluded from something else and this whole sort of notion of the relationship between inclusion and exclusion is is an important one that tends to be ignored you mentioned individual differences yeah and that's something you can't really look past in a in a classroom full of kids i mean yeah. everyone is different in their own way we can bring disability into the conversation as well yeah or special educational needs as it's referred to in some some places but even with that thought aside, everyone is everyone in a classroom is different. People are better at different yeah. things. This is what I think you call dilemmas of difference. As you say, the basic dilemma is whether or not to recognize difference in students. As either doing that or not doing that has some negative implications or yeah. risks associated with it. Yeah. In terms of stigma or denial of opportunities. In a in a related study, you described the balancing act required in trying to combine ways of meeting individual needs in inclusive ways, yeah. or trying to minimise any negative consequences. Yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about this? I've sort of tried to apply some of the ideas of difference dilemmas or differentiation dilemmas to the identification of children, the selection of curriculum as relevant curriculum as well as placement. And then I know others who've tried to apply the notion to assessment systems, the extent to which you can have inclusive assessment or you need to have more tailored, individualized, specialized assessments. Yeah, I mean, I think a sort of, you know, sort of an example I could give you as of a few years ago, I, I did a series of case studies to try and illustrate what special educational needs was like. And one of the cases was a young teenage boy with a visual impairment who'd had, he'd had it for many years, was in a, a large secondary comprehensive school, quite well provided for, satisfied, parents were satisfied with provision. He had a special needs coordinator in the school who was uh, very uh, uh, supportive. They enlarged a lot of the textual material for him. 
and he had a, uh, a visiting visual uh, impairment specialist teacher who he'd known since he'd been a little boy, who sort of, in a sense, supported him and his family over the years. I think this this young man, he had friends who were not visually impaired, but he sort of operated in uh, sort of two worlds, so to speak. He didn't want his visual impairment to be shown up. So, for example, he would never let his advisory teacher come into the classroom to see him because he felt that would illustrate his visual impairment to everybody else. He was very happy to meet him outside in private, and he clearly had a lot of emotional and teaching support from this man. And this, and they both understood, and they were sensitive to his wishes not to, to have it marked out. Um, on the other hand, he participated in sailing for people who were blind uh, or visually impaired. And he really valued that. He used to spend a lot of his time. He'd learned to sail. He realized that without that specialized support in sailing, he would never probably have had the opportunity to learn to sail. So I sort of give you a sort of notion of how he managed. He liked to go round with his, you know, visually sighted peers. But he, he, his style was sort of quite low key. And I wrote this up as one of several cases. And I think it sort of illustrated some of a, a, the sort of, he, he wouldn't say he had a, a dilemma. A dilemma is a sort of rather sort of fancy word to describe an experienced tension between which way you're going to go. And, but you could see how he managed his identity. I think that's an example at a personal level of dilemmas of difference. Um, I think that the way um, the way a unit in a regular school is set up, and when children are withdrawn into that unit for some specialist help, whether it's speech and language support or some other type of support, could also reflect some of the dilemmas that teachers would experience in the setting up of a unit um, and the managing of a unit. The, the notion of an experienced tension or a dilemma is that you, you resolve it. You have to deal with it. You have to address it. You have to resolve it. It's not just that you sort of flounder and there's nothing to do. It's trying to understand why you use the terms you do use. I would say that these things are require balance. There's a balance. And I'm not saying there's one kind of balance. And I would recognize that different people would balance it in different ways. You know, one child and his family would want to balance it one way. Another child and their family might want to balance it another way. Well, that um, is very related to um, your thoughts on how inclusive education can be more democratized. I mean, you've said you've said yes. before that it's yes. it's currently too too much of a top down yes. mandated initiative. Yes, this is linked to that, surely. Well, yeah, it is. It's interesting you say like that. <laughs> I mean, I I, um, I I I mean, it depends on what level you you um, talk about democratizing. I mean, clearly, there's a kind of democratizing about 
does an individual youngster, say a 13 year old, decide about whether they want to go to a special school or not? Uh, and you can see that as a kind of local democracy participation and so on. I think when I was talking about democratized, I was talking more about policy needing to be democratized. But actually, I, I do think that policy needs to be democratized. And I think that um, it's sort of in keeping with the idea of child participation, that uh, children participate in decisions that affect them. I mean, my views about democratizing, so I guess it's more, it's wider than inclusion, it's education policy is very particular to the UK, but I'm sure it applies in other countries as well, is um, that somehow I, I would see that disability inclusion, and I'm making a distinction between disability inclusion and maybe gender inclusion or ethnicity inclusion and other forms of inclusion, but disability inclusion is really not very well thought through. And we're sort of stuck with a system where there are um, a lot of concerns. Uh, certainly in England, there's been a rising number of children going to special schools, which seems to me not to be in, in line. And there's been a kind of financial funding crisis where local authorities who fund the high needs budget, which supports children with uh, education, healthcare plans are running out of money and having to go to government asking them to bail them out. That seems to me to be an issue. Uh, and we're currently waiting for new sort of government policy on that. But basically, people sort of take what they think is the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disability, which has got a particular line on inclusive education. And they think that that's the bottom line of it. And I guess my sort of view is that I really think that there needs to be more of a, a big debate about inclusion. And it's in that sense that I think it should be democratized. So it's sort of, I'm sort of saying at a policy level, we really need greater democratizing. And I think that's partly because I see that the political system doesn't function very well in um, representing the informed views of professionals and parents. I think that there are many other agendas that drive the way that uh, governments form education policy, particularly schools policy. You're working at the minute on a project on running a, a citizen panel yeah. to examine yeah. Yeah. how to design more inclusive schools for yeah. children with yeah. disabilities. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. seems very related to those, yes, to those ideas. And, and, and actually comes out of those ideas. I mean, I... I um, what does this look like? It sort of happened by chance, really. I mean, I've been interested for a while. I've written a, I've written a paper about citizens' assemblies, which are slightly larger groupings of people. But the sort of idea that we, we need, if we're really going to think through the questions of what kind of provision we need for the range of children with special educational needs in a kind of more inclusive system. We really need to uh, think in the longer term. The problem is that um, the political parties that have been in power for the last 30 years in this country basically uh, don't sort of engage, you know, I mean, at, at the time of the manifestos that come out at, at the elections. These are not issues that are ever discussed. So there's a whole sort of issue. Of course, there are all sorts of issues about the, 
poor relationship between teacher professional associations and unions and government and so on. So basically, I, I'm very much of the view that we need more deliberative democracy. In other words, so would need... that so would that take the shape of something? I mean, analogous to a jury. It, exactly. I mean, I'll tell you exactly what we're planning. But I, I've always argued for citizens' assemblies, which are much larger groups, maybe 50 people. Okay. And of course, citizens' assemblies are used in all sorts of areas. I mean, most famously in in Ireland, citizens' assemblies were used to change the law about abortion and so on. And there's an enormous international movement towards citizens' assemblies, citizens under the title of deliberative democracy. So what, what happened was... Um, the Royal Society of Arts, the RSA, which is a kind of lobby group, pressure group, they got a big grant from UKRI, which uh, we all know UKRI, they fund your studentship. It's the UK Research and Innovation Fund. And they were offering it, it was last June, they were saying, we will fund six to nine smallish projects on what they call public dialogue. And I looked at this and I thought, right, this is the sort of project we can try and set up a citizen's jury in the area of making schools more inclusive. And I guess part of my interest in this comes from, I have for years been involved in a policy network. Uh, when I worked at the Institute of Education, I um, started with a colleague who was then the professor, uh, Klaus Waddell, who died recently. And Klaus and I set up this policy group uh, started out as um, ESRC, a research council funded policy seminar. And we'd, the idea of the policy seminar was bring people, teachers, academics, researchers, professionals from different areas, healthcare, and parents to talk about policy issues. And we've been doing that for 30 years. This year is our 30th year of running this uh, network. It's now called the SEN Policy Research Forum. And I have for years wanted to run a citizen's jury, but I've not persuaded any of my colleagues. They're very expensive. You need quite a bit of money. So this opportunity came up. And um, I, one of my colleagues is on the lead group of the forum with my approach. He's quite a well-known researcher. And we put in a proposal and we got the money. Um, and it's, it's a very quick project. It has to be finished by June. I made contact with the various organizations that run citizens' juries. There's, there's an organization that recruits the people to the jury because the principle is you've got to have a representation of the community or, or the constituency you're interested in. Well, I was going to ask, just, just yeah. to butt in quickly, is yeah. that do they have to have an educational background? The way we do it, we've taken what we call education stakeholders. Uh -huh. So we've involved parents of children who have a special educational need, parents of children who don't have a special educational need, teachers who are specialized in special education and general teachers. And our funding allows us to run a, pa a panel. We call it a panel rather than a jury. It seems to me mm -hmm. the Scottish government do citizens panels and it seemed a bit a nicer term than jury. Sounds a little bit like uh, something's on trial. Yeah, so it's not so much on trial. So a citizens panel, our citizens panel will be 30. And uh, we've had a lot of advice from people who run these. I mean, as I said, this is a big international movement that happens all over the world. People do it. There's growing use of it in this country too. And um, so we are selecting, we're, we're going for teenagers, 12 to 16, 
because we think we can engage them. We're, we're sort of loading it more towards special needs. So we, we've recruited eight children with diverse areas of special needs, and we select them according to represent backgrounds, ethnicity, social class, all those sort of things, them and their parents. And then we are having uh, some teachers of children, or senkos, or people who run units, or psychologists who specialize. And then we have uh, some young people who don't have a special education needs and their parents and their general teachers, maybe a head of a primary school or whatever. So those 30 will work with us and we will take them through a procedure where we will tell them the, this is the question we want them to discuss. We will bring in some experts who either are professional experts or research experts or people who have experience of inclusion to present to them, get them to discuss issues and think about what sort of ideas they would think about what would a more inclusive school look like. So are they coming back with ideas for policy or laws or are, they, or, or are you looking it, more it, in, in It could be anything. Classroom? It could Classroom be anything. Teaching tactics. All of that. Okay. It could be everything from what will uh, the size of a school be, what will be the culture in the school, what, how, how much uh, separate provision will there be, will there be special schools, what kind of curriculum. So basically, we want them to examine and come up with uh, ideas, strategies. I mean, we structure it to some extent through the kind of presentations we will bring into them. So there's a sort of three phases. Uh, I mean, often the, the deliberative democracy has what's called a learning phase in which you present to these people, bring in others who they can question and get ideas. Then they have a deliberation phase in which they get into groups and they discuss and debate and argue one way or the other. And then they have a decision phase in which they come up with some decision can they find common ground? They might not find common ground. That's to be decided. And what we are particularly interested in, two, we've funded for two particular aims. One is how do we adapt the procedure so that we can involve young people with special needs? Say maybe a young person with autism, maybe somebody who's got a mild learning difficulty, maybe somebody who has a sensory impairment. What adaptations do we need to get them to engage in this sort of public dialogue. And this Saturday, we are meeting our eight young people with an identified special need online to slowly introduce them into the procedure. So we're meeting with them a couple of times to get to know them, explain, get their ideas of how they would like the dialogue to take place. And then the panel of 30 will assemble and we will assemble that initially online and then we meet face to face. And all these people are being recruited in the area of Portsmouth in Hampshire, going to take the facilities and all these people who have got to know each other online will then come together and then the panel will come to its final decisions on that day. And then we hope to release the kind of ideas and strategies that come out of the panel. I mean, that's basically it. Who is your target audience? For those for, strategies, for the strategy. I suppose it depends on on the level of strategy, right? If it's policy, it's, a, it's quite high up. Well, I hope it's, it's policy. I yeah. hope I hope it's policy. I mean, my sense is that I, I think it'll be policy at every level. I mean, I hope that 
people on the House of Commons committee will be interested. Um, I hope some of the voluntary organisations, organisations like National Association of Special Education Leads, I hope there'll be a lot of widespread. This is the first time there's been a citizens jury or citizens panel or assembly in this area. In fact, as far as I know, no one has ever run a citizens assembly or jury on education. This this goes back to Plato's days. It goes back to I mean, absolutely. this, is, this it seems a like such a good idea. There's a modern take on it in terms of the sort of modern methods of organizing sort of deliberative democracy. It, it surprises me because, I mean, the Times, for example, have had a, an education commission just published with all the, the great and good of education on the panel, you know, coming out with all their views. And no doubt they will have consulted people, including students and children. But to actually involve people directly. So as far as I'm concerned, it, whatever comes out will be interesting. There, we've had quite a bit of interest. I mean, we publicised it a bit. Um, people, I mean, in fact, one of the local secondary schools, some of them, one of the deputy head wrote to me and said, I heard about this. Can you help us run a citizens panel for our school? And I wrote back and I said, well, I'm, I'll tell you what we find, but I'm not sure we could just do it at school level. It's got to be done at a sort of locality level. I guess my hope is that we'll get a slightly more uh, refined set of views about policy and practice than we get normally. I mean, for example, the place of special schools. You know, what, what, is, the, what is policy about special schools? Should we be building more special schools? Or should we be trying to move in the reverse direction? And how should that be reflected? And I think that um, I think citizens panels and so on could contribute to policy making. I mean, I'm not somebody who thinks that governments ought to follow citizens panels. I think they could contribute to them process. And I, I think there is a place there. So, I mean, I think, for example, the House of Commons Select Committee could certainly run some uh, citizens assemblies or panels on topics like special needs and inclusion. That's well, it's, what it's, a, about. it's a super interesting initiative and I think a fantastic one. And I'm really looking forward to hearing hearing more about it in June yeah, and hopefully uh, something that can be scaled up, yeah. you would say. Well, hopefully. I mean, I yeah. think, I, I, I mean, how, it's so expensive. I mean, you can't imagine <laughs> how expensive and you know, the amount of work that goes into it. But in a way, I think, you know, um, this is what we're there. I mean, basically, we're funded to run a pilot and we're one of yeah. nine projects nationally. And the, the RSA brings us together, all nine projects. We had a meeting about a week ago, it was online, and we're going to have a meeting face-to-face -face for the first time. And people doing, you know, public, different types of public dialogue. But I mean, we're trying to sort of, take the citizen's perspective, you know, what 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 would be good for the society is mm. the sort of... Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. And before I let you go, yeah. how can people find out more about this? I can put some links to websites in the, uh, in the show notes. And... Yeah, um, we... Um, the, our policy forum has been updating on its blog. So I could give you the link to the 
is Special Educational Need Policy Research Forum, and that's got a, a blog, and we do an update on that. But we haven't actually run uh, our own website, I, I think just because, I don't know, we're so busy trying to recruit, <laughs> recruit people, pay people to do various things. You can't believe I spend most of my time trying to sort out budgets and finance. That is really <laughs> the honest truth. So yeah, it's a very exciting project and we have a really good team of people. And, and alongside that, we will be doing some evaluation. And I mean, certainly from reading the research on deliberative democracy and these sorts of practices, one of the things is that a lot of people say how much they learned by going through the process. And that is one of the things that I'm really interested in because I think that this deliberative democracy is an educational process in itself. And I have come to the view that I think young people, whether in schools or in universities, ought to be involved in these deliberations just to learn what's going on, to learn to deal with people who are different from them, to be able to talk and listen and argue in a structured way and 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 learn from that. So I I'm become a great believer in the educational value of these uh, sort of deliberative approaches. So that's something I'm quite keen to follow up on. There have been citizens assemblies about what the care system should be for um, uh, elderly people. Scotland uses quite a lot of them as well. There are local authorities in the country who use them mm. for planning. Uh, local developments and so on. And of course, the whole big climate debate, um, the climate pressure groups all argue for citizens' assemblies to be involved in decisions about how to make the economy more greener and so on. So I do I do think there's a sort of potential wave of interest in this very sort of structured approach. So I mean, in a way, it's sort of sort of it, it sort of picks up some of my issues about the complexities of decision making. And I guess partly because there are all these dilemmas, in the end, it's got to come down back to a democratic mandate. You know, and I mean, it's not going to be a final definitive once and for all mandate. But at least if people say, this is what we think should be over the next 20 years, then at least you've got a framework within which to work. And, and I just don't think we have that. Yeah, well, I, I wish you all the very best for the project. Ram, uh, thank you so much for your time and That's thanks for coming on the show. I'll see you then. See you, Richard. That was Bram Norwich. My thanks to him for joining me today. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Golf 4. If you did, then why not share it and share it around? You can also subscribe. Listen to a new episode every Wednesday. I'll see you next week.